They are incredibly big brain, incredibly smart, intelligent animals. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that is actually about an animal that uh, lives in pods, dolphins, the Rossafari Podcast. And yeah, I know, I already made that joke with the Erica Allen episode about dolphins before, but uh, not, not in this part, so it's new? Question mark? No? Oh well. Hey, you know what? Can't win them all. But one way that you can be a winner is by making sure that you're following along at Rossafari on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Rossafari Pod on TikTok, and by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Rossafari. You give me a couple bucks a month, I give you cool bonus content. Like, for instance, in this episode, there is cool bonus audio from the interview where my guest talks about some of her favorite things about dolphins. It's very cool and very unique. I dig it, and you will too. Patreon.com slash Rossafari to sign up. Okay, y'all, so this episode is a little different than, you know, a lot of the standard ones. Uh, we're winding down the Florida series, only three more episodes from Florida, and this is one of them. But the inspiration for this episode actually came to me a while ago. I, I mentioned Erica Allen right at the top of this podcast, and if you don't recognize the name, Erica is a marine mammal keeper at the Indianapolis Zoo that has been on the podcast twice, two of my all-time favorite episodes. Uh, the first one was when she educated us about walruses, and it was so cool, and I got to meet the walruses at the Indianapolis Zoo, and um, that was really neat. And then the second one was about the dolphins that live at the zoo. And again, I got to meet the dolphins and, and see some cool behaviors, and it was just, just a fascinating experience and a really cool time. And I'm, I'm so thankful to Erica for those experiences, but I'm also thankful to her because when I asked her if she had any conservation organizations she wanted to give a shout out to, she mentioned the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program. And seeing as how I had a gig upcoming in Sarasota, Florida, you know, where I was for this whole long Florida streak of shows we've been doing, I thought to myself, well, I should probably check them out and go talk to someone there. So I did. My interview this week is with Katie McHugh, who is a staff scientist at the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, which is actually headquartered at Moat Marine Laboratory, who you've now heard from three times on this podcast already. However, it's worth mentioning that um, the SDRP is not actually a part of Moat. They just have their offices there because Moat is awesome and um, let other organizations work there and do research and all kinds of cool stuff. So yeah, I, uh, I packed up my recording gear and I headed back to Moat, but for a non-Moat interview, and it was awesome. Katie is really knowledgeable about dolphins, and this episode focuses on a lot of the work that's being done in the wild to study these amazing animals and understand them. If the Erica Allen episode is a yin, this is the yang, the opposite but part of the whole same picture thing. I don't know. I never really studied Taoism. I, I might be completely wrong on that. I don't know. I thought it sounded intelligent. Meh, whatever. But yeah, this is a good one, y'all. And um, one of my favorite things about it, and you'll hear more about this in the interview, is that there are three distinct entities. There is Sarasota Dolphin Research Program. There is Moat Marine Lab providing the, the space and everything. And then there is the Chicago Zoological Society that actually oversees the SDRP. Uh, it's really cool. And hearing about how it all comes together, it just it brought me a lot of joy. I love zoos supporting conservation, as you know, and this is an incredible example of that. 
Oh, and don't you worry. Even though you will be hearing a lot from me and Katie, you're going to hear some other special guests on this podcast as well. But first, you're going to hear an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. All right. So without further ado, here is my interview with Katie McHugh, staff scientist at the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program. All right. So let's start off the way I always do. Tell me who you are, where we are, and uh, what you do here. All right. Sure. Um, Thanks, uh, John. My name is Katie McHugh, and I am a staff scientist with the Chicago Zoological Society. I work as part of the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, and we are here actually at Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida, where our base of operations is. Um, We have been part of the Chicago Zoological Society and operated by them since 1989, and then based here at Moat as a long-term partnership since 1992. Um, So we're sort of part of a number of institutions. (laughs) That's really cool. And um, why is the Chicago Zoological Society... Down in Sarasota, which is, last time I checked, nowhere near Chicago. That's a very good point. Um, They're here because um, we study the local dolphin population here in Sarasota Bay. Um, We're actually the world's longest-running study of a dolphin population. And um, we were started in 1970 by a man named Blair Irvine, who was interested in just kind of learning more about dolphins along the coast and where they go. He put a tag on a dolphin first in October of 1970, and then they rapidly figured out that these animals are residents. We'll probably talk more about that in a bit. But um, And so the research program grew up around there. And so this is the home base of animals and the lab where we study. The Chicago Zoological Society is very interested and focused on inspiring conservation and conservation leadership. And um, our research director, Randy Wells, has been a conservation scientist um, with the, the Chicago Zoological Society since the 1980s. So. That's just amazing. It's the kind of story that I love so much because, you know, it's a, it's a zoos in, in Chicago. I mean, a zoological society. But right. so they run the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, which yes. is one of the best zoos in the country. And um, that's and then they're just yeah, doing research down in Sarasota, as well as a bunch of other stuff. I know. But um, yeah, I mean, well, they I also were that. the first. So they were the first inland oceanarium was at the Brookfield Zoo. And so they had dolphins in human care um, early on. And they've been interested in also understanding and learning about their wild counterparts and, and participating in conservation efforts um, surrounding them as well. So. Yeah, I love that kind of thing. <laughs> this makes my heart happy. So um, let's start off talking about you a little bit, though. Um, okay. Tell me your journey to get here. How <laughs> how are you here, you know, professionally, personally? Did you love dolphins when you were a kid? All that stuff. Um, well, I actually grew up in Michigan, so kind of like, you know, a zoo in <laughs> Chicago studying dolphins. I'm a kid from Michigan studying dolphins. But I was always fascinated with the oceans. I was always really interested also in um, animal behavior and kind of like animals with really complex um, societies and things like that. And so um, when I went to college, um, I, I kind of eventually honed in on marine biology and dolphin or, you know, other marine mammal research as an area that was of interest to me. And I first got my start actually doing an internship um, uh, with the University of Hawaii uh, in Honolulu at a, a lab where they were studying dolphin uh, cognition and sensory systems and and working with animals in human care. And then, um, you know, I, it was fascinating. Like, I absolutely loved it and loved everything about it. But I kind of really wanted to know about the natural context. Like, how and why do they have these big brains? You know, why can they do these things? And how do these individuals interact in sort of the real world, if you will? And I was super lucky that I actually did my second internship here um, nice. at the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program when I was in college. I got exposed to all sorts of things that we do here. Um 
I got to be on a boat where we had students studying all sorts of different things about dolphins and just got really engaged in studying them in the wild. Um, I came back to help with some projects here, and then I also worked with um, marine mammals, um, spotted dolphins in the Bahamas with the Wild Dolphin Project and dusky dolphins in New Zealand for a while. Nice. I kind of went went back, did a little detour into the conservation NGO world and worked um, uh, right out of college for um, a year for environmental defense, doing a fellowship looking at sort of more the policy side of ocean conservation, and then really missed being in the field. And was extra lucky that when I um, contacted Randy uh, Wells, our research director, about potentially doing grad school, there was a chance to come back. And so I came back as a grad student and um, have kind of been here ever since. So I started in 2000. I've now, this is now my 21st year being sort of involved with the program. I was in 2000, I was an intern, came back as a grad student in 2005. And then stayed around as a postdoc and now staff scientist. So they kind of can't get rid of me now. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's allowed me to really kind of grow with the program and the animals and and learn a whole bunch of different things about not just dolphins in Sarasota Bay, but, you know, how to study them, how to help other people learn how to study them, how to really approach conservation in the real world. And increasingly, I do a lot of work with our education and outreach Um so um, hopefully we'll chat more about that stuff too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting. So I am a touring musician. Mm -hmm. It's my jam. And uh, I'm down here playing a show now. But I frequently have played at the Van Wessel, which mm -hmm. is the big touring house here. I think mm -hmm. I've, I've toured through three different times um, there. And I will never forget my, I think my single favorite moment of like shock and awe on tour <laughs> was one day. I stepped out of the Van Wessel. I was I was going to run to Publix and get dinner, and the the stage door is right by the water, and there was a pot of dolphins playing, mm -hmm. and my brain exploded. Like, yeah, I mean, it's right know. across the bay from us yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, it's right, <laughs> and it's right there, and and the dolphins are there, and as a touring musician, living my dreams, and then also getting bonus dolphins. Like, <laughs> come on. So I'm, I'm a little jealous that you get to to work with these dolphins all the time. Yeah. Um and and now we're talking in situ conservation and study here, right? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm looking around this conference room, and I'm not seeing any dolphins. So <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing lots of you know pictures of dolphins but yes. we're studying stuff in the wild yes right? we're and, studying them out in their ecosystems in their natural habitats right. all along the coast so yes. how do we do that tell me tell me what this is like right so well our primary technique is called photographic identification or photo id our whole approach to studying dolphins is really longitudinal monitoring of the biology behavior health and ecology of these individual dolphins and their ecosystem um, and so for the individual dolphins, we're actually able to tell those uh, animals apart by different patterns of nicks and notches on their dorsal fins. So we spend most of our time out on boats watching dolphins, taking photos of dolphins, and then tracking those individuals that we can identify all the way from birth through their death. Um, and, and so what that really involves is mostly taking small boats out to survey around our study area. We go on set routes. We do monthly monitoring of the population. And we record basic information about who's around, what they're doing, how they're looking, you know, if they if they have new calves or not, you know, if there's any human interactions of concern or injuries that we see. And um, then we continue on to the next group. And so doing this, we're able to get a really, really detailed picture of sort of where and when and what these animals are doing over the course of their lives. Some of our dolphins we've seen more than 1,500 times in their life. <laughs> so we do get to know them really, really well. And um, we also use a number of other techniques to understand their biology and behavior in more detail, as well as connections to what our dolphin population is doing and the health of their ecosystem. So our other primary research project here is actually a fish ecology project. So we spend um, seasonally, we go out and we do sampling of um, the fish ecology in the bay focused on dolphin prey fish, and we're tracking the abundance and distribution and sort of health of those fish populations uh, through disturbances such as red tide, which we're starting to experience again here along our coast. Um, for the animals themselves, we also get a more detailed picture of their health and their physiology through periodic health assessments on the animals. So we are kind of fortunate, I guess, um, that Sarasota Bay and the surrounding area is very shallow waters, so we can actually safely handle animals in a situation where people can stand and the experienced handlers can, oh, can wow. actually like do some physical exams on them. They can get kind of their little physical checkup 
a portion of the population at a time. And through those means, we can get samples um, for things like genetics and contaminant levels. We can we can use ultrasound to examine their whole body systems and see if they're, you know, if they have any problems. Um, we can do all sorts of other really detailed work that might not be possible elsewhere. And then once we know the individuals, we can track them and their lives more closely by doing behavioral and communication work. So we can do things like record their um, whistles and their vocalizations and understand how and when they're using different sounds, how they communicate with each other, and also look at how their behavior is impacted by other individuals and, and other things in their environment. So yeah, we do a lot of different stuff. <laughs> yeah, clearly. That's awesome. And I think it's it's kind of fascinating that, um, you know, I feel like there's this this big conversation that happens a lot, especially when you're talking about <laughs> dolphins in captivity that, you know, oh, they should have, they have the whole ocean to roam and they have, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're saying that their entire lives spent in Sarasota Bay and you can sit and, and research that and stuff. And, and that, that's kind of an interesting perspective, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, what we found at least for the dolphins that live right along the coast and inshore and like our bays, sounds and estuaries, something that's really kind of um, discovered here in Sarasota first that they are long-term residents to our coastal waters. So we've found that these animals have year-round residency here in Sarasota Bay um, for multiple concurrent generations. We've had up to five generations of animals here at the same time sharing the same sort of community home range. Um, and they, we found sort of a, a mosaic of these kind of dolphin communities all up and down the coast, sort of wherever you look. And what that means is that if there are things like, you know, I'm not saying dolphins don't move. They certainly can move. And, sure, and we've sure. done some tagging and tracking that have shown, you know, how far animals can move. Occasionally they'll move from one community to another. But in general, there's dolphins everywhere. There can be dolphins, right? And those ecosystems are holding as many dolphins as they can. So when something like a red tide disturbance comes in or if there's a pollution event like the Deepwater Horizon oil spill back in 2010 in the northern Gulf, those animals can't just move. I mean, there's not really a good place for them to go that doesn't already have other dolphins living in it. Um, and, and so they really can be locally uh, significant impacts of human activities on those populations that rely on long-term knowledge of that ecosystem and that place where they live. It's really their home, and it's their home for multiple generations. So we're kind of their visitors when we are out on the bay and enjoying the waters. That's really fascinating. Um, I am curious, uh, since you guys are out there and, you know, it's the same people time after time, interacting with the same dolphins time <laughs> after time, uh, do do they seem to get more comfortable or knowledgeable of you guys, or do you work hard to make sure that, you know, that's not a thing? You know, I think that's a really hard question to answer. Now, I would say in long-term experience, we might be able to respond to their behavior more quickly in ways that ensure that we're not disturbing them when we approach them. So I would say typically those of us with a lot of experience doing wild dolphin observations, you know, we work really hard to, you know, under a federal research permit to approach and observe these animals in ways that's not going to change their behavior, that's not going to impact them. And so sometimes when we pull up to a group of dolphins, a, a new intern or someone else who's with us on the boat be like, wow, you know, like, how could you get so close? Or how, how come they aren't, you know, trying to get away from you? And and I don't think it's that they know us, but I think it's that we kind of can mutually, uh, um, uh, I guess, recognize if we're doing something that might be potentially disruptive to them and, and back away and make sure that we're driving our boat in a way that is allowing them to keep living their lives. Um, so I think it's our experience really kind of observing those subtle cues in their behavior more so than them recognizing, oh, hey, that's the SDRP research boat coming by. <laughs> we're we're going to stick around and let them see us. It's more... I think us being able to recognize that and, and kind of keep ourselves in an appropriate place. Yeah. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. And just to clarify, um, you know, because I have a lot of <laughs> listeners who who are from different backgrounds and mm -hmm. stuff, uh, you know, from zoo people to people who just like the pod and are learning about all this stuff for the first time. Uh, you're not out there training the dolphins. Like oh, the no. Erica Allen episode, we talked a lot about that and I even got to do some of their behaviors and stuff with them. And that's cool, and that's that's part of of life in captivity and keeping them, you know, educated and all that stuff. That's it's fine. That's great. But that's not what we're talking about here. You don't have a whistle. You don't have <laughs> yeah, a bucket no. of fish. You know, right? <laughs> that's like, correct. These are wild animals. We are in their world on their terms, right? Like, like we we get to see what they will let us see, right? I mean, and it's not uh, we we do not train them in any way. Our work is um, entirely observational. You know, we get to know them well from from watching them, and we do occasionally have to handle animals for something like a health assessment or a rescue. Um, 
situation. But those animals in that case, they're they're not trained. You know, they they don't have that history of of working with humans in a way that you know they're they're trained to present for husbandry behaviors or something like that. It it can be, um, um, you know, a more difficult situation, right? Than than you might have in in human care for sure. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so take me back mm-hmm. to when you first started and you are a, a young, wide-eyed <laughs> scientist and you get down here and they say, all right, you're going out on the boat today. And mm-hmm. tell me what that first experience was like for you. I mean, it was pretty phenomenal, I have to say. I mean, I was, I'll say this probably a lot during the course of this interview, like, I was super lucky. Like, you know, I feel like I was in the right place at the right time. I got to work my very first season here, ever doing anything, on a boat where there were three different research projects that were all happening at the same time. And our team of interns got to work on projects that were focused on um, maternal behavior, so looking at the differences between experienced and inexperienced moms and how they care for their infants. We were also looking at how baby dolphins develop their signature whistles. And we were doing some work that was looking at the impacts of boat traffic and boat noise on dolphin communication. And so there were these three like related projects where we were focusing on the same individuals for them, but collecting lots of different kinds of data. So I'd say it was like amazing and also really overwhelming at the same time because <laughs> We were learning all these data collection procedures. We're also watching these animals, trying to figure out how on earth the grad students could tell all these individuals apart. I mean, now I totally can, but then I couldn't. I'm like, dolphin, dolphin, dolphin. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was it was really, really cool to have that first experience be something that was really focused on the individuals and their behavior. And that's sort of what I've continued. Um, my own work was looking at juvenile dolphin behavior and Um, impacts of red tide on dolphins, and then increasingly looking at human interactions and impacts. And a lot of that is really focused on these behavioral studies of individuals, really following them over time and and learning about them. Um, And so it was was just kind of fascinating. I was was also just like really um, uh, interested and and just sort of floored by the fact that there's this whole community of dolphins just living right here, right next to Sarasota. Like, I mean, that you could go out and you could do this work with wild animals and like come home at the end of the day, right back to the dock if you needed to. And you, know, you weren't having to be out at sea to study and understand animals. And the older I've gotten and the more work I've done with the program, I've come to understand like when I was a kid, I think I thought as a wildlife biologist, you know, you're working out in the middle of nowhere, right? Right, right. You know, you're, you're, you're dealing with these populations of animals and just learning about them and, and how they function and that people like weren't a part of that picture. But the truth is, of course, conservation is all about people, right? And wildlife conservation work, especially doing it along the coast where where humans and animals are sharing that space, is is really where a lot of the the work for marine mammal conservation is is happening, you know. And and it's even though at first I was like, oh, this is super convenient, you know, we get to get on the dock and come back at the dock in the day. In the end, it's also really important to do the work there because having that um, connection to the local community, the the human population, right, and the animal population is what's really important for both to continue to coexist for the long term. So, Yeah, that is cool. And that, that is an interesting perspective. You're right. Even having been doing this for, for a year now and, and talking to people, <laughs> I still tend to picture it as, like you said, you go out into the, the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, and you're, you're away <laughs> for weeks and you can't bathe or whatever. But you could literally go and research your dolphins tomorrow and then come see my show tomorrow night. Yeah. Like, that's yes, <laughs> kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's, and like that's I said, amazing. the Van Wiesel Performing Arts Hall, it's like directly across the bay from where we leave every morning to do our work. Yeah. And we call it the Purple People Seater. It's just right over there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. In the industry, we call it the Purple Cow because it's really big. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we found out that people down here don't call it that by calling it that to some people and getting mm. strange looks. So, But yeah. yes, if you are a Sarasotan and you are listening to this, just know that we call it the Purple Cow in the industry. So. Good to know. <laughs> I've learned something. <laughs> Very cool. So let's talk about um, education Mm -hmm. because, you know, you mentioned that education is important and you're talking about how the coexistence of of humans and in this case dolphins is so important. But you're a research center and I feel like most people would think that you're not doing education or outreach or anything like that uh, other than obviously sharing, Mm -hmm. you know, findings, getting published, stuff like that. So what kind of uh, outreach and, and, and education stuff do you do? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd love to talk more about that. So we're actually part of the conservation education and training group at the Chicago Zoological Society. 
So as much as our research is a focus of what we do, the education and outreach component and making sure that our work really is fostering communication of dolphins in Sarasota Bay and elsewhere is as much a focus for our program. So the research, education, and conservation kind of all go hand in hand. And, um, you know, to some extent, the education components come about through the fact that we've sort of developed into this natural laboratory. So over the long term, you know, we've now studied dolphins. Our 50th anniversary was last October. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I haven't been here that long. But, you know, <laughs> the, the program has been. And and we've been able to really bring about a large collaborative network of researchers that focus on animals here. We've also been able to use the space to develop tools and techniques that become more widely used in other places. And people can come here to learn about those things. So at one level, our education is sort of within the marine mammal research and conservation community. We have students coming to learn techniques from us. We have researchers who work on other species of conservation concern coming to learn how to do things in their own environment. And then we also have, you know, younger students, so K-12 and other um, um, younger students that we're helping to just inspire and educate about dolphins, about our local marine ecosystems and I'm sort of trying to hope that they're going to get engaged and wanting to care for, you know, these animals that are their neighbors. And so for some of that, we've worked directly with people like teachers. Um, We worked with a fifth grade teacher in Sarasota County to develop a lesson plan that looked at dolphin conservation and entanglement threats. We've also worked with Moat Marine Laboratories Education Department and the Brookfield Zoo's Education Department on programs with high school students and camps and others to really kind of make sure that we're working directly with educators who are able to translate our research in ways that are more effective for students. For community outreach, it's come in, oh boy, so many different forms over um, the years. But we really are, are working to focus on the fact that, you know, everybody has an impact when it comes to conservation, right? And everybody can help dolphins in some way, even if they don't live right near the coast. So, um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the fact that our actions, wherever we are, can impact the oceans. Um, And that dolphins are actually, you know, kind of sentinels of ecosystem health, right? So dolphins as top predators in our coastal environment, their health and what's happening with them can often... Um, really help us understand it can be an indicator of the health of that ecosystem. They're eating the same fish that we're eating, right? And um, they're being impacted by the same things that we are. So red tides and other kinds of disturbances as they come in and pollutants and other things that impact them. So um, we, we, we try to mostly foster sort of connection. And then we also try to do directed outreach. So unfortunately, you know, you know, even in a place like Sarasota where we've got this, this wonderful population of dolphins for the long term, they're not immune from having human impacts and, and other problems. And we found through some of our collaborations with like Moat Stranding Program that up to about a quarter of the dolphins that die, die from human causes here. So they're dying from entanglement or ingestion of fishing gear. They're dying from things like boat strikes. And so for that, we have to really be speaking with the folks that are encountering dolphins when they're out in the environment and really doing that in a way that's engaging them on how they can behave in ways that make it safe for animals and for them in their homes. And so we do a lot of talking about things like responsible viewing, making sure people understand that, you know, you're supposed to stay by law at least 50 yards away from dolphins. That's half a football field. It seems really far on the water. It's not actually as far as you think it is, right? Um, but that's a good distance to minimize things like disruption of their behavior, um, to let them go on living their lives and still be able to see what they're doing. We do a lot of work making sure people don't feed dolphins, right? I mean, a lot of times people might see an animal in the wild, and it's not just dolphins, right? This happens all all around, and they think, oh, let me give it something to eat, right? Um, that can so alter their behavior in ways that make it dangerous for people, right? You know, you don't want people to get bitten by animals, but also can make it dangerous for those animals. They'll come in closer contact with boats and fishing gear and things that can hurt them. Um, so definitely making sure people don't feed animals. And then trying to work right now, a lot of our work is really um, about to be focused again on the sort of um, interwoven issues that we have when red tides come into our study area. 
So red tides, I don't know how much we really want to get into red tide because it's a complex. Oh, issue. let's do it. Let's <laughs> I mean, because I, I, that was actually going to be my next question. Okay. We're talking about red tides and yeah. I want to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah, so let's do it. Okay. So Florida red tide is caused by a, um, a naturally occurring uh, toxic dinoflagellate called Karenia brevis. And so this organism has been present in the environment in the Gulf of Mexico for decades. Um, and, and it, will sometimes reach concentrations that are high enough to impact um, uh, species and to kill fish and kill other organisms. Now, what causes that can sometimes be somewhat controversial, but basically, you know, blooms require nutrients and anything that fuels extra nutrients into the environment can potentially fuel a a bloom. So there are human components to this going on as well. Um, and we've been seeing, unfortunately, an increasing, you know, frequency and intensity of blooms in the last sort of, you know, 50 years as compared to before them. Um, what happens here in Sarasota Bay to our dolphins is if these blooms are intense enough, I mean, it'll kill fish, it'll kill seabirds, kill turtles, kill manatees, kill dolphins. And so the most recent really severe red tide in 2018 killed a whole lot of dolphins all up and down the coast in addition to a bunch of other wildlife and fish. Um, dolphins get off, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, maybe a little easier because one of the things that red tide, um, does is it's a respiratory irritant and dolphins have very forceful breaths. If you've ever been out and seen a dolphin either in, in a zoo or an aquarium or, or out in the wild, when they breathe, they come to the surface and really, you know, blow that air out. Um, and so they, they may not end up inhaling quite as much as maybe some of the other species do. But they still are ingesting toxins through their prey. They still are impacted directly by it in in their waters. And it kills a lot, a lot, a lot of fish. And so what we found in the aftermath of these events is the animals that manage to survive, they may lose weight, they may lose body condition, they might not be in great health afterwards, and they're looking for food anywhere they can get it. And so we tend to see increases in interactions between dolphins and folks who are out fishing in our coastal waters kind of in that aftermath period of a red tide. And the recovery, when people are finally happy to be back out in the bay, they're starting to catch fish again, and of course are having to release a lot of those fish because they may not be the target species or maybe undersized or whatever. Um, dolphins will sometimes then come up and take fish from people in that in that context. And what we try to prevent is that from becoming you know a major part of what a dolphin's trying to do right um because if a dolphin gets food in that context even if a person's not trying to feed them then they they learn really fast that this is a way they can get food and we've seen up um we had you know in in the past red tides we've had a number of animals die with ingested fishing gear in the aftermath of red tides so right now we're actually like looking for people to help us track you know if and when these these issues start to um occur more frequently you know as this red tide is coming and if we ha- start to have sites where lots of dolphins seem to be attracted to fishermen, then we'll try to go out and do some directed outreach about what people can do to try to not, you know, reward a dolphin for what's a risky and unnatural behavior. Right. And, you know, making sure that they're not feeding them unintentionally, that they're picking up gear and, you know, not fishing right near those animals is really about the only thing that helps is to just not let them get food in that context. Yeah. Makes sense. So uh, you mentioned that human elements have something to do with red tide. Mm -hmm. We're not entirely sure everything, but is there any more, like what, what kind of human stuff can cause it? Do we, do we have any idea or do we just have evidence that as humans have been doing more stuff, uh, there are more red tides? Um, Well, so it's, it's nutrients, right? So um, these, these, these are toxic algae. And so algae are fueled by things like nitrogen and phosphorus and other um, whatever nutrient might be limiting to them at that time is what's going to fuel it. So over the long term, you know, anything that it puts nutrients into the environment could potentially help sort of add fuel to, um, you know, the fire, so to speak. Um, so we're talking things like fertilizer, or even something as simple as dog waste, you know, along the bay, picking up dog poop, um, certainly, uh, uh, releases of nutrients, large-scale releases of nutrients can potentially interact in ways that are not going to be um, happy for our our, <laughs> our, our, our our residents of the Bay. That makes sense. Yeah. So when we're talking nutrients here, we're talking like certain, you know, chemicals and things that, mm-hmm. that humans are dumping in. Or like you said, even natural stuff like waste, but mm-hmm. that we're dumping in water. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it comes from all sorts of sources, right? right? <laughs> Small <Yeah>. and large. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. And that actually leads to another interesting question. So um, small and large. <laughs> taking care of things. 
lives, uh, doing what we can for the environment. I have been raging a little bit lately mm-hmm. um, about the fact that I keep seeing these memes, and and I think some of them are uh, coming from recent documentaries that maybe I question the validity of all the science. But hey, whatever. We're not here to talk about that right now. <laughs> um, but where people are basically saying, you know, look, you want me to use reusable bags when there are companies just dumping you know, crap directly into the ocean at levels that will, will never change. And I can't use a plastic bag really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the, the idea seems to be, I mean, I get what they're trying to do, which is we need change at a corporate level. We need environmental protections that, that, that go against, you know, corporate corporations doing bad things. And I agree with all of that, but what would you say to somebody who feels like my impact can't matter as one individual, uh, when, when these corporations are out doing this I mean, we certainly encourage everyone to to do what they can to reduce any sort of plastic or other debris, you know, pollutants from getting into the marine environment. And one of our main, actually one of our sort of like common um, uh, focal points for a lot of our outreach is reduction of marine debris, proper disposal of trash, you know, reducing things like single-use plastics because – um, it does really add up. And it's also a way where individuals can start to make a difference. You know, we actually even have like a virtual debris team and using the Marine Debris Tracker app where, you know, when we're out on the bay or when others are out in, you know, anywhere near in the watershed where stuff could get to the bay and pick up trash, we log it, you know, and and just, you know, like our small staff and our few volunteers, like we've managed to pick up like over 80,000 items in the last just couple years since we started doing this, you know, and it really does add up quickly. And it's a way to do something concrete because you, know, you might think my my bag isn't a big deal. But if your bag ends up in the bay, you know, a turtle or or another um, animal might eat it, right? Like like they can they can have problems with anything that ends up out there. and. And what we found is, you know, like dolphins can get entangled in just about anything if they swim through it. And so every little bit really does help in helping to identify places where debris and other pollutants are like accumulating in ways that we could go to tackle and clean up is also really helpful. And so, you know, we found it and worked primarily in places like bridges and piers and other spots that tend to just accumulate stuff that, you know, it takes repeated and constant effort to keep those areas clean. And so, you know, you might think your one plastic bag isn't going to do something compared to Whatever, but it is something that you can control, right? And it's a way to at least make sure that you personally are doing as much as you can, and and to know that you really are helping. I mean, it doesn't maybe feel like it, but but you know, like it really is. It really is helpful, and all of us doing stuff does add up. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. I think that's really important. And you know, I've I've had this thing that I've noticed recently. Um, I was kind of waiting to figure out how to slip this into a podcast, and I think now's the time. Um, where if I'm just driving down the highway, mm. I make note of how much plastic debris I see and Mm. stuff just along the way. And that's not corporations. That's not big dumping. That is individual humans. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I drove all the way down here from Pennsylvania and I don't think I saw a foot, definitely not a yard that didn't have at least one piece of plastic crap, you know, on on it. And so while I do agree that we need to do all kinds of cool, you know, changes with how corporations are handling their, their trash and everything, it is individuals that are also causing a lot of problems. And like you said, you wouldn't know directly, but it could be your bag that a sea turtle <laughs> thinks is a jelly and decides to eat or something like that. Like every little mm-hmm. step helps. And I, I think that is really important. So, Yeah. I mean, and it is really everywhere. And the thing about plastics is that they just don't go away, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it, it takes so long for them to break down. And, you know, we've even found, you know, there's increasing studies looking at things like microplastics and, um, you know, as they do break down into smaller, smaller parts or, or other things that are in the environment, even those, you know, there's detectable levels at higher, you know, um, at similar levels you might see in, in people and dolphins and, and, and anything, you, basically anything you look at at this point, you're finding evidence of exposure to um, components of, of plastics. And, and those things can uh, have health impacts for sure on, on the animals that, that we study and, and on us, you know, down the line too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. So you you mentioned a lot about dolphin sounds, mm-hmm. and I uh, I'm fascinated by dolphin <laughs> song. Uh, may have something to do with the whole musician thing. I don't know. But um, talk to me about the research y'all are doing into their communications. 
Sure, I'd love to. Um, it's We work with a number of collaborators focused on sound and on dolphin communication. Um, primarily, these are folks from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, like Dr. Leila Saig um, and uh, Franz Jensen, as well as folks from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, so Peter Tayak and Vincent Yannick. Um, and, and early in the early days, um, you know, some of our, our founders were even interested in this too. So, um, Blair Irvine and Michael Scott, who's worked at the program for a long time, started recording just the sounds dolphins were making back when they very first were doing some of the initial tagging here. I'm sorry. Did you say Um, Michael Scott? I did. I'm a big office fan. So not that one. (laughs) Maybe that's where he went after Dunder Mifflin. I'm sorry, but you said that and I like my eyes got really big. I'm I'm sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Um, but it's something we've been looking at for, for decades, long before I was at the program, folks have been, have been studying this. And so we do it in a number of ways. So, um, I know in your episode with Erica that you, you guys at least mentioned the topic of signature whistles. So the, the signature whistles from dolphins was actually discovered here in Sarasota Bay. Awesome. Um, and they do. Every dolphin develops a unique whistle that functions like their name. They can be used referentially in the dolphin communication. Animals will copy each other's whistles to kind of address each other and all that stuff. So how we study that um, is a number of ways. Sometimes we'll put a hydrophone in the water. Hydrophone is an underwater microphone. And just tow it along behind the boat while we're observing dolphin groups. This is what we were doing when I was an intern with the group that was looking at infant focal learning. This is what Dr. Leila Saig was doing as part of her dissertation, she was looking also at mothers and calves and how their whistles um, connected. Uh, and, and that way we'll let you hear all of the sounds that are happening as well as know which animals are around. But it doesn't necessarily let you know which individual is making each sound. So if we do something like our health assessment and we actually have our hands on the animals, and that time we can actually put a suction cup hydrophone like right on the forehead. No one can see me, but like it's like a little microphone attached to their forehead. It's an organ called the melon. So um, <laughs> the dolphins have this fatty organ in their forehead, and this is what actually, like, concentrates and focuses sound. So the sound actually is is coming out from that part. Oh, wow. Okay, body. cool. And it can, like, it can actually you know, have it go in a certain direction. So those let us know for sure, like, which animal's making what sounds. And that's how we've been able to really pinpoint some of the signature whistles of different individuals in our study They've also been able to do actual experiments, so playback experiments with animals while we have them in hand and also now while they're free swimming, where we can play sounds to them and look at their responses and better understand what components of the whistles they're actually keying in on or whether they're they're telling certain individuals apart or not. Um, and those are pretty really like cool things to participate in and get, get to see what the animals are, are doing. Um, lately we've been able to use new technology, um, these really cool, um, sort of onboard computers. There are these tags called D tags, um, digital, um, archival tags that have suction cups that you can stick to the back of the animal. They have stereo hydrophones and they have like accelerometers and depth and pressure sensors. So these don't stay on for that long because like a dolphin can get it off of it if it wants to, right? Um, but they can record everything. So they record all their sounds and all their movements for up to about 24 hours. So we'll stick a little pack on their back and then we'll follow them around and we'll collect the tag later. And we can look really fine scale at all the sounds they're making in the context of what they're doing and who's around them. Um, and that's really, um, sort of exciting work to, to do because we get to like a really kind of like intimate look at the life of this dolphin for one day. (laughs) Um, and then it goes on with its life. Um, on a broader scale, we're actually working with um, a, a, another collaborator, um, David Mann from Loggerhead Instruments, and some folks from uh, New College of Florida as well, um, on developing a larger scale passive acoustic network. Um, it's called our PALS, or Passive Acoustic Listening Station um, Network, here in Sarasota Bay. We have 10 stations active now, and they're all around the bay, and they're recording sound all the time. And if a dolphin whistle is detected, It'll actually like send a clip over the cloud and we can listen to it in, in some of the newer stations like a couple minutes later. We know there's a dolphin there and we can listen to the whistle. So we have a group of students right now working with um, uh, a professor from New College and with uh, Leila Saig um, from Woods Hole on helping to actually figure out if we can tell which individuals are the animals we're seeing come by those stations. So those whistles are super interesting they are individually distinctive, just like their dorsal fins, and we're hoping to eventually be able to kind of track our animals around the bay from their sounds as well as from the photographs that we take. It's time for interrupting, 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 interrupting John. Mm. 
Hey, y'all. So Katie was nice enough to send me some audio of the different whistles that we talk about. And here are four examples of signature whistles. So yeah, I thought that was really cool. And you can hear that they are really different. I honestly expected them to be like super similar, but, um, you know, kind of different. Like when you have people that are named Katie, 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 and Katie, and it's K-A-T-I-E, K-A-Y-T-I-E, K-A-T-Y-E, and C-A-I-T-I. I don't know. There are so many weird spellings of names nowadays. But anyway, uh, back to the interview. That is really cool. Uh, and it, it leads to the question that I feel like I have to ask. Mm-hmm. I feel like every five years, somebody's like, we're studying dolphin language and we're going to try <laughs> to learn how to talk to dolphins. So tell me what you think about that. I think we're still a ways off from fully <laughs> understanding dolphin communication. It is complex. And every time we get a new bit of information, we realize there's another layer that we didn't fully understand yet. So, you know, we learn about things like, other types of shared whistles that dolphins might have. And in particular, we're just starting. um, We don't know a whole lot about some of this yet. So it might be premature to mention it, but you know that sometimes dolphin males, they will form these really tight alliances when they become adults and they have, they're like kind of wingmen. They spend their whole life together, you know, like working together to, to get access to females and, you know, uh, compete against other males and ward off predators and feed and all this stuff. But those males, when they form these really tight relationships, sometimes will also develop these shared whistles. And we don't really know exactly what they do, but we think they might help them in coordination in some way. Um, And so, you know, it's like we just start learning more and more and realize there's things that we never noticed before. Um, They also have all sorts of sounds. They have – we should definitely look this up. I should have brought some examples. Sorry. This whole range of sounds called burst pulse sounds are these broad band, just like super energetic, funky sounds that probably function in all sorts of different ways in their in their uh, sort of social interactions. And we're just sort of scratching the surface on what we understand about their use of those sounds. It's time for... Interrupting. 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 Interrupting, Interrupting John again. And you guessed it, even though she didn't bring them to the interview, she did email them to me. So here are what Dolphin Bursts song sound. That's hard to say, y'all. I've stumbled over this three times, and I'm just leaving it in this time. This is what Dolphin Burst sounds sound like. Yeah, I think that was right. Anyway, here are the dolphins. And I promise you that wasn't just me messing around on a kazoo, even though it definitely sounds like what it sounds like when I mess around on a kazoo. Anyway, back to the interview. Um, but sound also, um, you know, this is one other thing I can't you know, fail to mention is that for dolphins and other underwater creatures, you know, sound really is their primary means of keeping in touch. Right. Sound in water travels much farther than they're able to see or touch another animal. And so in order to, you know, hear each other and find each other in their really sort of complex social world, they're using sound. They also use sound to find their food. So we found through our connections between our prey studies and our dolphin studies um, that they actually select for fish that make sound. So they they are actually swimming around and they're listening for fish in addition, in addition to like just going up and trying to like echolocate and say find a fish. And so anything in their environment that might prevent them from hearing those sounds can be a big problem. And so here, especially in, in, a, in a, a fairly uh, populated area like Sarasota Bay, you know, we've found in our studies that boats will pass within 100 meters of a dolphin every six minutes on average during daylight hours, even more frequently than that in some areas that are more concentrated. Every time a boat passes by these animals, that engine noise is going to interfere with their ability to hear each other or to hear their food. And so, you know, when that's happening all day long, every day, it's another thing that, you know, again, if I, if I thought about it, I would have brought a clip to like let you hear what it sounds like as that boat passes underwater. 
you know, we really encourage folks to like, you know, slow down and, you know, give them space because that also can help reduce that sort of noise pollution, those noise impacts that people can have in their environment without ever, you know, doing other things to them. So yeah. makes sense. So you mentioned social structure and mm-hmm. you mentioned wingmen. So let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about dolphin social structure, because I sure. think it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. So dolphins, um, they have a very um, fluid social structure. They have what's called a fission-fusion society. And it's really a fancy way of saying that dolphin groups, especially these ones along the coast, dolphins tend to interact in small groups, but the composition or who's there can change really frequently. Um, so they they do break down into some sort of basic components. So you know, moms with their calves, their currently dependent calves, tend to be a pretty tight social unit. They often are found with other moms with calves of similar ages, but they're not always necessarily like with the same other individuals. The juvenile dolphins, once they become independent of their moms, which doesn't necessarily happen until they're like three to six years old, they stay with mom a while. Um, then they kind of go off into these really fluid groups where they're primarily found with other young animals that also just became independent of mom. It can be dolphins of either sex, but they're super fluid, really energetic, very social, and they they change a lot in their composition. And then the males, they tend to form, like I said, these alliances. Here in Sarasota Bay, those tend to be pairs. We don't typically see um, different configurations than that, but they will form a very, very strong bond with one other male, and usually that will last until one of them you know, dies or goes missing, and then they might find another alliance mate down the line. Not every male gets an alliance. Some of them are more solitary, but they do form these really tight um, bonds. And then the males and females will interact, of course, during different parts of the year um, for mating and for other purposes, but they don't tend to hang out. Like adult males and females don't tend to hang out that much outside of the breeding season. Um, So anyhow, those groups will change a lot. They'll change really frequently, and animals will also separate and come back together even within those basic units for things like sort of feeding and, and, and other things. So they use those communication sounds to really like kind of know who's around and keep tabs on folks and also to like find each other and, and coordinate and as the groups join and split. Makes sense. And oh my goodness, that's a squeaky chair. <laughs> that was a chair, a not chair. a dolphin. Um, <laughs> and then I, I uh, what what role does um, sex play in all of this? Uh, because I know that that's kind of more complex than just like, hey, they mate. Right. So dolphins, um, they kind of use sex for everything. I mean, they use sex for mating, of course. That's its primary purpose. Um, but they also, especially those those young animals, will use sexual activity in a social way for bonding. Even sometimes there can be sort of um, almost, you know, ag- aggressive or sort of not, hierarchical is not really the right word. We don't fully see a hierarchy or anything like that in, in the wild. But um, the, they use sex for all sorts of facets of their social system. Um, and, and so it does, it does comprise a fairly, you know, large component, I guess, of, of their social behavior is, is sociosexual activity. That's not just for mating. Yeah. Basically they're wet bonobos, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. More or less. This is true. Yes. If you've had a bonobo episode and folks have learned about them, this is, yeah, they're, they're basically Oh yeah, that works. That, that that's a nice, nice, uh, tidy description. I like it. I like it. Uh, so then, um, I'm, I'm, you know, are there other research projects that I just don't know enough about that you'd like to shine a light on? Okay, so one thing that you know, I think I touched on early on, but I haven't um, come back to is some of our work with um, other species in other areas. And so one thing that's like pretty cool and one of my favorite parts of being able to work with the Chicago Zoological Society Sarasota Dolphin Research Program is that, you know, we are this long-term program. And so people do come to us like for advice and for um, assistance and especially for the expertise of folks like Randy, who's our, our, our research director. And so we do a lot of working with people who are dealing with conservation issues in other areas and other species. And so, like, for example, right now, one of the projects that that I'm working on that's sort of a newer field project is using dolphins as one case study to try to better understand the impacts of multiple stressors on marine mammals. So a lot of research is usually focused on, like, what's the impact of this on dolphins or what's the impact of that on dolphins? But the truth is that, like, dolphins are facing all of these things at the same time. Like, they don't get to pick and choose what kinds of impacts right. they are um, dealing with. And so... Our team is actually working with groups from a number of other institutions um, 
to to start to address this and start to look at how we might tangle apart how one impact can affect their animal's ability to respond to another stressor. And so we're actually doing some studies that are just starting up in um, Barataria Bay, Louisiana, where we're trying to look at animals who've had really big impacts from the oil spill and are still facing impacts from that and how well they're able to respond to, you know, other kinds of threats in their environment. So things like boat disturbance. Um, those animals up there are also about to face probably another major um, uh, impact from uh, uh, freshwater um, exposure. So they're, they're, this is this is beyond the scope of, of this exact um, <laughs> uh, talk, but um, there are plans to do large scale sort of freshwater um, inputs into that area as in terms of broader ecosystem restoration to bring sediment down and, and all that stuff. But it will flush the that bay ecosystem with fresh water in ways that will impact other parts of the ecosystem, including um, some of the fish and, and dolphins and, and other parts. So um, those animals have kind of been hard hit a lot in, in the last. They're not really recovered from the, the Deepwater Horizon, and they're about to face another threat. So we're we're starting to try to understand a little bit about kind of how those multiple stressor dynamics work. And we're able to use some of the things that we do here and our techniques to apply in other places. We also do a lot of work um, internationally. And so uh, another place that, that we've been able to do uh, a number of different types of projects with is I work with Franciscana dolphins. So I'm familiar with Franciscana dolphin. It's on one of these posters here somewhere. It's this teeny tiny dolphin that lives in South America. Um, and they're they're critically endangered. I mean, they uh, face um, uh, big threats primarily from interactions with, with fishing gear. They get caught in gill nets and other things. But coastal development can really impact them as well. And so over now decades, we've been working with um, uh, uh, conservation practitioners and researchers in Argentina and in Brazil to better understand those animals and their movements through things like tagging animals and understanding their overlap with fisheries, working directly with those organizations and fishermen to try to look at how gear modifications might help to reduce um, bycatch and then also just help to better uh, understand the needs of those animals um, because they are facing significant threats. So that's involved a couple of different types of things. It's involved our researchers actually going to field sites there to help with field projects. It's involved their researchers coming here for training and, and learning how to do things like safely handle animals and do some of the research that we do. Um, but it's really like extra rewarding for me, I think, when we get to see how what we do here is able to impact animals, not just in Sarasota Bay, but how these dolphins here get to help dolphins everywhere. Um, and so that's really like one of the things that engages me um, is trying to make sure that we can always apply what we're learning here, whether it's um, how we do something or whether it's a tool that we can help develop in the environment that we've been able to build up here that can then help you know animals elsewhere. Um, and I think that's, you know, a, a big part of, you know, also what CZS is excited about having, you know, this connection with us and our dolphin work is that it's it's bigger than Chicago, right? It's bigger, bigger than Sarasota Bay. It's really something that allows us to really increase that impact. And the other way that, that we end up doing that is through, you know, our student and education programs. And so in addition to doing research, you know, my other um, big role here over the last several years has been working primarily with things like our uh, college internships and, and other student training programs. And so as someone who started as an intern, it's like, oh, it's like full circle. It makes me all happy <laughs> to like see what those students end up going out and doing as well. Um, and so those are parts of this work that I think are pretty special and and reasons why I want to, you know, stay with the program forever. Now that I'm here, they can't get rid of me, right? Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> okay. So. All right. As a professional. Okay. I need your opinion on a quote from one of my favorite books ever, one of the most accurate scientific books ever. It's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> okay. by Douglas Adams. Okay. And Douglas wrote that, for instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much. The Wheel, New York, Wars, and so on. Whilst all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. but. Conversely, the dolphins had always believed that they were far more intelligent than man for precisely the same reasons. So as a human who studies dolphins, tell mm -hmm. me, who is right? Are the dolphins the smarter or are the humans? <laughs> oh, man. You know, that is sadly not a question I can answer. I think that we do not have the tools to answer the question of exactly how smart dolphins are because you can't compare dolphin intelligence to human intelligence in that way, right? Like they 
are incredibly big brained, incredibly smart, intelligent animals for their environment, right? You know, and we are, you know, well, we are, right? We are. You just answered the question without answering the question. As a species, we're doing all right, but we're also causing a fair amount of destruction that is sometimes, you know, a little disheartening to see. But, um, but yeah, I don't think it's really something you can actually compare in that way, I guess is where I'm going. With yeah, that. I know. I just yeah. wanted to get that quote in there because it's like my favorite. Ever. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, was there anything else you wanted to cover? Um, I guess just the only other thing, so I think I mentioned this sort of like tangentially, but um, I don't know where most of your listeners are from, but... The other thing that we, you know, really is super important for our work is not just understanding dolphin lives, but like understanding that full circle in through to to death. And so we collaborate really closely with the Stranding Investigations Program here at Moat and the broader Stranding Network in the Southeast U.S. And so there's a, a couple pieces to this that I think I probably should at least mention. One is that obviously we'd rather prevent injuries from happening like before they do occur if at all possible. And so trying to make sure people understand how to safely engage with animals is is a big thing. But when animals get hurt, you know, there's only so many of us, right? And there's tons of people that are out there that can possibly see them. And so if anyone ever sees an animal that they think is in trouble, there's something that's just not right, or especially if it's definitely injured, entangled, or dead, we definitely encourage people to call the Stranding Network. Um, There is actually an app. It's Dolphin and Whale 911. That can work anywhere in the United States and the territories even. Um, if you're in the Southeast U.S., you can call 1-877-WHALE-HELP, I believe. Nice. Um, and that will connect you to the correct you know, responder for your area. But we can only help the animals that are still alive or recover the, the animals that have died and learn from their deaths if we get reports. And so we always want to make sure that like that information is out there. And we learn a ton from all of those reports that we get. If we're able to respond early enough, we have been able to rescue a number of animals. You know, I think I said that dolphins can get themselves entangled in just about anything. You know, we've even rescued a dolphin entangled in a Speedo swimsuit before. Usually it's fishing gear. Wow. Not always. Not always. Um, You know. I just wonder what happened to the owner of the Speedo. I know, right? We (laughs) still wonder. That was a long time ago. And yeah, the dolphin is now alive. Alliance, he's he's doing great. But it was, it would have killed him. You know, (laughs) I feel like so... Um, anyway, but but we we were able to go back with a lot of these collaborators that we've worked with over you know a few decades to actually do some of these rescues of animals that were still free swimming, you know, entangled, and find that you know we actually those are having an impact for those populations. So we we're able to look at the long term success of rescues and able to actually like track what would have happened to our population with and without rescues and see that our population size has been bolstered by the rescues. It's not just that we save the individual, but that individual goes on to have kids and also contribute to the local population. And so, you know, like like our talk about what individuals can do and whether their one plastic bag really matters, well, every individual dolphin actually does matter too. And so the first step in that is making sure that we know when someone's in trouble. And so um, we definitely want to make sure that folks have that information handy so they can help if they do see a dolphin or sea turtle or manatee or whale or anything in the water that is in trouble that's who you can call. Love it. And uh, yeah, everybody listening, please remember, skinny dipping is fine, but don't let your suit go out into the water, mm-hmm. okay? Don't Indeed. be part of this problem. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. All right. Well, I don't have that many exciting stories, sadly, from here. Um, but um, we, you know, we do have the occasional bodily fluid come at us during our health assessments. Of course, um, for me personally, though, um, the 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 area where I've probably had to deal with the most dolphin poop, if you will, is before I. Uh, actually worked here as a grad student for a while. I told you I did dolphin research in the Bahamas. I worked with the Wild Dolphin Project. And there, those animals are in deep waters. No one's handling them. They're just observing them. But they still want to understand things like their genetics and what they eat and all that other stuff. So one way you can do that, by collecting their poop. And so we would swim and snorkel and take underwater photos of these spotted dolphins. And then we would wait for them to poop and then have to swim up into the cloud of poop and collect it in a jar. (laughs) 
and then bring it back on board. And you can actually get both information on the, the dolphins and their own genetics from, um, you know, skin cells that will shed in there as well as, you know, their their prey. So got lots of valuable info, but it's definitely not something you ever think you're going to do. You're like, oh, I'm watching this dolphin and look, it pooped. Let me swim towards it instead of let me go the other way. That's funny how. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a blast. You're welcome. It's great. Thank you so much. Love it. I love it so much. And I love that the dolphins that they're studying are the dolphins that I saw one day randomly on tour that meant so much to me. I love how small and interconnected the world is when you look for those things. Anyway, you can check out the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program by hitting up sarasotadolphin.org. And even though they're only giving space to them, let's give another shout out to Moat Marine Lab, which is just all kinds of amazing. You can check them out at Moat Marine Lab on social media or at moat.org on the interwebs. And don't forget, y'all, the signature call that dolphins use when they want to remind you that the word credits backwards is Stiderk is... The Ross Safari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Ross Safari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Ross Safari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.